leave it open. So tonight we are in our third class, even though I forgot to record the second class, I'll probably do some kind of recording to cover that. Uh, but tonight we're gonna go over two chapters of Acts, Acts 5 and Acts 6. And hopefully we will continue doing some form of this. I'd like to have, kind of have an active Bible study going on. There's Mark. Say hi to Mark. <laughs> hey, Mark. Hey. Hey, Mark. Uh, What's going on, We've just finished Vespers here at St. Anne's because uh, I don't know who will actually end up watching this. Um, and so, yes, the, the idea of going forward with this is um, in the future, we'll have in-person classes, of course, uh, as things, uh, God willing, calm down a bit and uh, still do Zoom so our folks can be able to engage who might not have been able to come to the service. Um, and so we'll go through different books of the Bible, maybe some other things, but for a while I'd like to, us to just uh, do Bible study. So uh, let's begin with prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Christ has risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and upon those in the tombs, bestowing life. O Christ our God, bless this time, and open our hearts and minds to understanding of your scriptures as they reflect you, and as they reflect your church. May we grow in wisdom, may we grow in love, and may we grow uh, in our boldness in proclaiming your gospel. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So Acts 5, um, we are encountering Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, if you probably know some stories from Acts, this is going to be one of those greatest hit stories uh, because uh, there's some there's some blood involved. So uh, it's an interesting story. Um, and so I'd like us to go ahead and read the first, this episode, and then I will use this episode to fill in a little bit from what we discussed that didn't get recorded this last time as a kind of background. And then we can discuss a little bit. Who would like to read uh, one through 11? I can. Go ahead, Erica. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these wor words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young men arose and wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, Yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And 
Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, carrying her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. I can understand why. <laughs> yeah. Mark just said you can understand why uh, great fear came upon all the church and all who heard these things. Uh, indeed, it's this is what, a part of Acts where we're kind of clipping along. Things are going so well for the church. They're adding so many people. There's been resistance. There's been some jail time. Uh, but the church seems to, uh, in the last chapter, kind of rebound even. Uh, and the, uh, we underlined in chapter four the idea of boldness uh, that the apostles and the church, even though there was resistance and persecution, there was still a desire, a rekindling, and a specific energy to proclaim and to witness to the resurrected Lord and to the kingdom that has been basically inaugurated amongst the apostles uh, by the falling down the, the way scripture talks about it uh, in Luke and Acts, uh, about being clothed from on high with the power from on high that the Holy Spirit uh, came and um, renewed uh, the covenant of God with his people by creating the kingdom that Christ had been preaching about from, well, even John the Baptist had been preaching about, but Christ came to bring this kingdom. And you have in the apostles uh, the beginning of the church. And that story, that specific understanding of the inbreaking of the kingdom in Jesus Christ himself uh, and then in his disciples and those who are with him, uh, this is the story of the book of Acts of the Apostles. Um, the main characters uh, in the book of Acts, of course, are the apostles, but as we'll see, it's very much Peter and then Paul, uh, who are the kind of the main two that with uh, some side line of others who are important, uh, Barnabas, for example. And it's actually Barnabas who at the end of chapter four, a few, just a few verses uh, about Barnabas right before chapter five. And I've gotten some mileage out of Barnabas, uh, at least at a Wednesday night, uh, I think, uh, talk after Vespers. But because we didn't record it, I'm just going to do a, a little uh, a redo again. But you have, uh, at the beginning of uh, the book of Acts, you have uh, it being clear that Judas has taken the money that was given to him to betray Jesus. He's bought a field, and it is in that field that um, he um, kills himself. And so, again, we have uh, this, un this idea with Ananias and Sapphira of money and land and, uh, well, death with Ananias and Sapphira. But Barnabas in chapter 4, it's very explicit that Barnabas um, who, as I've got some mileage out of, uh, I look at him as a kind of icon of Pentecost because at Pentecost that we had in Acts 2, you have the Holy Spirit falling upon the apostles and then in uh, men from all over uh, the known world at the time uh, hearing the apostles, Peter preaching and the apostles preaching and teaching in their own language. And so the church from the very beginning has... Uh, I believe Erica brought uh, up, uh, and I think even in our hymnody, it even underlines this, the reversal of the Tower of Babel, when the 
many languages came upon the people because out of their own desire to basically overthrow God by building uh, a building all the way up to God and kind of enshrining themselves in God's place. Uh, you have a Pentecost God coming down in the form of wind and fire. And just like he led Israel through the desert to the promised land, you have the creation of the church and you have in Barnabas, he's a Cypriot, he's a priest, so he's a Levite. Uh, and he's somebody who, when he sells his land, he comes and he puts uh, the money, the proceeds from that at the apostles' feet. We have today in Acts 5, we have the same movement of Ananias and Sapphira bringing and putting money at the apostles' feet. So what do you all think about this story? Does this story remind you of any other stories in the Bible? Um, and uh, so I'll ask that question. Then my second question uh, I'll ask is, what do you think the, the importance of noting that it's laid at the apostles' feet? I'm going to mute myself now. <laughs> the first story that I thought of was Cain and Abel, one making an acceptable sacrifice and the other uh, the other sacrifice was not acceptable and has more to do with the attitude of the heart and with um, honesty, with worshiping in spirit and in truth, if you will, to uh, pick up from John that um, the last chapter, it was honestly, here is everything. And this was only a partial, but, but it was lied about. Genesis very specific because I've always wondered like what exactly did Cain do wrong <laughs> right that's it's always one of those you come away and Ephraim basically says exactly what Jim just said is that the problem was that Cain did not actually offer the best of what he had whatever that was and so his attitude his internal state towards God was not of self-sacrifice of um, serving God uh, first and his kingdom first right seeking out that righteousness, uh, but he kept back some for himself and didn't put the full proceeds. And what, you know what, this is, there's another element of this besides uh, that is also um, that Cain, Ephraim will go later and say that Cain uh, still sacrificed to God, but what he did is he sacrificed his brother to God. Out of his envy and out of his anger, he ends up, because he, he won't actually do the right sacrifice, so he does like, an evil sacrifice to God and the blood that is now on the ground crying out. Uh, you have this, you know, you can hear, you can see Judas, right? His, his uh, blood on the ground where he uh, took his own life in the betrayal of our Lord. And you can see Ananias and Sapphira and the death here. Is there any other stories? There's one story that I this has always reminded me of. Where there's in the Old Testament, there is a story uh, about uh, restoring the ark to the place that the ark should be at. And the command of the Lord is that no one is to touch the ark. And somebody decides to touch the ark uh, because they think it's going to fall over. And they are struck dead at the spot. So there's an element there of, uh, oh, Mark agrees with me that it came to his mind too, uh, mm -hmm. that 
there is a kind of like acts as as we ended that this section there's there is a seriousness uh, involved with uh, God and how we relate to him and what it means for the church uh, to be the, the church, <laughs> to be actually God's people. Um, it wasn't just fun and games. There was something uh, very serious. And that is, brings us to our second question that I posed, which is, why the importance of emphasizing the apostles' feet? They're the ones that Jesus gave the authority to. Remember the book, at the beginning of the book of Acts, we spent a few, they very specifically, they had to choose somebody to replace Judas. So they choose Matthias because they have a particular office and ministry that is given to the apostles um, that is not just kind of like, um, how should I say this? There's a, this is a real responsibility and office within the church. The apostolic ministry is something that you can see even, uh, from the chapters before this, where, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, maybe it's in these two chapters, uh, where even Peter's shadow, uh, heals somebody. Uh, there's something about their particular office uh, as apostles um, that uh, is reflected here in verse 4, for example. When Peter is asking Ananias, he says, uh, After a soul, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. So there's an underlining of the apostolic ministry and the importance of it and that it was God's uh, will. This is not some um, ragtag team of guys, but this is something God ordained, something that was uh, instituted by God. And because of that, um, there is weight <laughs> in uh, lying to the apostles and how you relate to the apostles. Reed, I know you've got something to say. I'm sure you're stirring the pot over there. Oh, I'm mostly just listening at this point. Oh. <laughs> the, it's, it's fascinating to me how God here and in the in and understanding this even for ourselves that there is God's holiness is something that we need to underline for ourselves to take it very seriously how we relate to him and it might uh help to remember because as we've talked about in the in the last two classes that Luke Acts needs to be read together, right? They were written together, and so it'd be best to read them together. And there's something that this story is picking up uh, that we've already seen uh, shown in Acts 2 and Acts 4, the sharing of all things together as Christians. Um, uh, that There's this emphasis in early Acts upon possessions and how the early church lives together and works together. And this is something that's not just uh, peculiar to the book of Acts, but it's actually uh, 
very specifically highlighted in uh, the Gospel of Luke. Uh, and I just want to, I, I try to do some research uh, before these classes, and this is a, a book on New Testament theology where they're specifically talking about the synoptic tradition and looking at the um, Gospel of Luke and highlighting for him, he, he's been talking about in the Gospel of Luke, specifically when you look at the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain, you get different emphases, right? Um, Luke and even the structure of Luke, when you get to uh, the Sermon on the Plain in Luke, which sounds a lot like the Sermon on the Mount, but it has some uh, very specific different emphases and even wording. So instead of poor in spirit in Matthew, it says poor, the poor, blessed are the poor uh, in Luke. and uh, Luke, you also have the beginning of his ministry where uh, Christ stands up in the synagogue and starts preaching about this is the day of Jubilee. This is the day of um, the righting of wrongs, the uh, forgiveness of debts, all of this. And this focus on uh, possessions is throughout the gospel of Luke. So in uh, Luke 12 uh, and then 16 through 21, uh, he begins warning the crowds of the dangers of greed. He instructs his disciples to trust in God rather than wealth. If they have possessions, they are to use them wisely in order to enter the kingdom. This is Luke 16, 1 through 13. They are not to be like the Pharisees, whom Luke characterizes as lovers of money, nor like the rich man who neglected the needs of the poor. Warning his disciples of the dangers of riches, he says that it is easier for a camel, we know this passage, uh, a camel to pass the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. In effect, Luke makes the correct use of possessions a measure of discipleship. Disciples must use their possessions to relieve the needs of others. Otherwise, they'll be swept away in the great reversal that the inbreaking kingdom is affecting. Because of the demands of the kingdom, disciples must leave everything to follow Jesus, Luke 14, 33, something Peter and his fellow apostles have already done. Uh, this, these themes, uh, especially very strong there, 12 and 16 of the Gospel of Luke, uh, are as emphasized here in the book of Acts. And I think you get uh, a very strong uh, how important this is in the early church with the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, they misused God's gift and they lied about it. So uh, the effect of that was, was death. Any other questions or comments about Ananias and Sapphira? It's also, uh, to me, uh, it's kind of the antithesis of the widow and the two might. You know, she had very little, but she gave everything she had. They had much, and they kept back part for themselves. So it's kind of the, the opposite of, of the widow and the two mites. Yeah. Well, also the thought of... Um... Elisha and his servant Gehazi uh -huh. and you know, when Elisha had refused payment but then afterwards Gehazi tracked down the leper that had been healed and requested payment and then tried to hide it from Elisha that um, he had taken money and I think ended up afflicted with leprosy himself didn't he that sounds about right yeah that's right See, there's Reed. <laughs> I think we read the book of Acts and it can be 
so easy for us, not just the book of Acts, but just um, the New Testament or scripture and to so often spiritualize it into something that's just this internal kind of feeling or internal thoughts or ideas. But discipleship, as the book of Acts shows, is something that's going to affect our actual life and how we live it and what we do with our time, with our possessions, with our money, um, and how those relate to the church. Um, so let's uh, continue. I want to cry out, who could be saved? <laughs> Mark <laughs> says, who can be saved then? I right. think you're, you're a character from the Gospels, Mark. <laughs> So uh, it also showed the fact that we're drawing so many parallels with the Old Testament. Um, there is a continuity. Yes. Uh, one of the uh, early heresies the church fought with, and we still you hear it today, uh, uh, when particularly Gnostics who wanted to draw a sharp distinction between uh, modern modern Gnostics would say the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament and would want to say, oh, the Old Testament is all judgment and wrath, and the New Testament is love and forgiveness. But that's, that's just too simplistic. You go back to Isaiah has wonderful words of, of God's love for Israel, and you read these stories in the New Testament um, here of like Ananias and Sapphira and, and see that um, the Bible doesn't divide so neatly between Old and New Testament, but there truly is continuity it is the same god that we worship and that there is a seriousness to this yeah i was talking about this passage with uh john suits the other day and he was basically reflecting in a similar vein as you jim very just like everybody's like the new testament's all about this you know god of love versus you know the bad old new old testament God, and then you read this passage, you're like, whoa, <laughs> this is straight up Old Testament. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, the church said no to Marcion <laughs> way back in the, in the beginning. And we, every, well, every week in the Nicene Creed, we start off, we believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Right there, we've identified the, the God we believe in, yeah, the creator from Genesis. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah, it's it's not such a simple thing. Mm-hmm. It's hard to pay attention. <laughs> Mark said it's hard to pay attention. I don't know how well you can hear him or not, but uh, uh, just fine. <laughs> crystal clear. So let's uh, continue and thinking, uh, keeping Ananias and Sapphira in the back of our minds, but um, let's continue with uh, the rest of Acts five and six. Uh, who would like to read? Um, the next section here, 12 to 16. Be happy to. Go ahead, Reed. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Yet none of the rest dare join them, but the people esteemed them highly. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. 
we have here again the continuation of Acts 2 and 4 with the signs and wonders. Uh, again, we have an emphasis on the apostles. Verse 12 saying, the hands of the apostles, that is through them. Uh, we have then oh, this fascinating, um, they're bringing out the sick into the streets and laying them on uh, beds and couches so that at least the shadow of Peter might fall on some of them. It's, when I was growing up, the way we basically considered miracles to be a thing of the Bible and that all of that was done. Did anyone else grow up with that kind of teaching? Because I did. It's a fascinating teaching. Philip, you grew up in the uh, Stone Campbell broad movement, right? Christian church? You got it. Yep. Yeah, all those basically uh, miracles were to affirm the authority of scripture, but they didn't continue anymore. Um, I think a lot of that had to do with actually uh, a hidden secularism that they didn't even really realize that they had. uh, Because if you're deny God's uh, sustaining of the created order, um, how could there not be miracles even to this day? So when we read about miracles that occur within the church from miraculous icons to healings to um, even though this is just as fascinating, the, the shadow of Peter falling on somebody that that would possibly heal, that that's what they were looking for. Um, the church still exists in this mode. It's not something that was just uh, at that time but it is something that continues to this day. Do any of this, any of the shadow of Peter or any of these things remind you of any stories in the old Testament? I, part of what it reminds me of is things like, and not just the shadow, but just the idea of, uh, God being present. So for example, there'll be talk of, um, a shawl or something that uh, comes out or the physical things that the presence and the healing of God can work through. They have when Israel uh, goes around Jericho with the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, that there's processions mm-hmm. with physical things that are to join them in battle. Even when Israel does battle, they're, uh, they're to bring out certain uh, things of the temple to go with them. And there's the presence of God with them. Jim, you've unmuted, so. Yes. Um, the first thing I was thinking of was Elijah's uh, mantle. Yes. Um, but also just the, the notion that um, holiness and also that um, uh, profanity could, was, was communicable, that there was something, um, you know, things could be charged with um, power, uh, so, for example, when uh, Moses and the, the Hebrew people were at Sinai, and uh, before Moses went up the mountain, they were to fast, and they were to, the people were to keep their distance from the mountain. No one was even to touch it. Uh, but that if anyone did, uh, the penalty was to be stoned or um, it's either shot through with arrows or spears. Or, but essentially, the, the means of execution was something that people didn't have to lay hands on the, the victim, the person being executed. 
um, because there was this notion that whoever had transgressed, who had touched the mountain, uh, that they were laying hold of something and uh, receiving something they weren't worthy to receive, um, but that no one else was to touch them either. Um, so, but this notion that, that people or things could be charged with um, holiness. And this is just me thinking out loud, but uh, saints whose bodies are incorrupt, sometimes I've wondered if that is just because the, the Holy Spirit is the spirit of life, um, that process of death and decay has been so slowed down because there is almost like a battery uh, at the risk of putting it so crudely um, that, that there's such a, a charge of holiness that's there or uh, such an indwelling of the life of Christ um, that death <coughs> is, is greatly slowed, if not stopped. Absolutely. I think, I think, that is uh, last Pentecost when I preached about the Holy Spirit actually dwelling within us and trying to say this is not a metaphor. Right. It, he really does dwell within us. And that brings vivification of our actual body. It's not um, just ideas. It does actually in something like relics uh, and that there's, wonder-working icons, there can be holy places and uh, desecrated or profane places. Um, definitely. Um, we, I think we can numb ourselves to those things and not be able to discern those things, uh, but that's on us. <laughs> not being able to discern those things uh, rightly. Um, let's uh, continue in Acts 5, who would like to read uh, the next few verses? Let's look at, um, let's go ahead and read 17 through 32, actually. I'll, I'll take it if no one else will. No. 17 through 32. Yes, sir. Then the high priest rose up. And all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees. And they were filled with indignation and laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. But at night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go, stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest and those with him came and called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel and sent to the prison and sent to the prison to have them have them brought but when the officers came and did not find them in the prison they returned and reported saying indeed we found the prison shut securely and the guards standing outside before the doors but when we opened them we found no one inside now when the high priest, the captain of the temple, and the chief priests heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. So one came and told them, saying, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. And the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence. But they feared the people, lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest asked them, saying, 
did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. They'd already been told to stop. They did not stop. They're put in prison, they're freed, and they go out, and then they're brought before uh, the council. It's, uh, again, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna sound like a broken record. What does this remind you of? <laughs> These kind of interactions, prison, guards bring being brought before the high priest and the council well this will all be repeated later with uh with paul it also seems to mm, reverberate with the story of jesus right that he is thrown into prison that he uh, is claiming to be god and that's the charge they have to trump him up on, even though they don't really understand fully what <laughs> all of that uh, means. Um, so, and you even see this, I'm, I'm thinking of the part of the reason why this reminds me outside of that, that they're a temple, they're having all this conflict, um, is the captains fearing the people in the same way that uh, the Roman uh, and the other authorities feared uh, the people until they saw that there's an opportunity um, to turn the people onto their side. Then they were ready to strike uh, at Jesus. I notice also the emphasis on the temple. Um, I understand the Sadducees were sort of the priestly caste, and so they, their interests were centered in the temple. And of course, this was the charge that they tried to bring against Christ was his claim that he would destroy the temple, which of course he right. didn't make. But, right. but here we see the disciples are hanging out in the temple. This is where they're teaching and gathering. And so this is where they're arrested, it seems, imprisoned. The angel tells them to go back to the temple and that's where the officers have to take them from. Do you think it's a little ironic the high priest says to uh, Peter, uh, look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. Isn't that exactly what part of the crowd was, was shouting? Uh, his blood be upon us and upon our children? Um, the uh, It's fascinating here how also uh, read with the Sadducees about them being in charge of the temple. 
the Sadducees are also the party within Judaism that doesn't believe in the resurrection. So they have before them a kind of double whammy. <laughs> uh, if this is really the Messiah, not only were we wrong about resurrection, uh, we're also kind of wrong about temple and what else could we be wrong about? So um, there's nothing like uh, a group of guys realizing that they might be wrong for them to uh, white knuckle <laughs> onto uh, their authority and just telling people to shut up. <laughs> Cause that seems to be that like, what else are we going to do? Uh, we just need, like we told you to be quiet. Please just leave us alone. Uh, but Peter and the other apostles say, and this is one of these lines, right? We will obey God rather than men. This can gets used all the time to justify all sorts of things, whether or not that's actually obedience to God. We'll let God decide that. But um, we have here again, another little short gospel uh, message. And you can see, as we've looked in earlier chapters, that kind of, you can see, the basic creedal formulations about what we understand Christianity to be. The God of our fathers, of course, is the God of Abraham, Isaac. Uh, this is the one who has raised up Jesus Christ. This is God the Father, um, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. This God exalted him to his right hand, so he's enthroned him uh, to be the prince and savior. He's uh, giving repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. He's redeeming and he's staying true to his covenant. Uh, earlier, we, there was a focus on uh, Acts 2. There was a focus on David. Acts 4 had a broader focus. Here, it's even kind of, if, if we were at 10,000 feet, 20,000 feet, we're like 50,000 feet here, the most succinct way that we could say this. Um, and then the, they're saying that we're witnesses to these things. We were there at the beginning. And, and I, I find it interesting. They say, so also is the Holy Spirit. Uh, who is given to those who obey him. So they're also here saying, you guys don't have the Holy Spirit. <laughs> we have the Holy Spirit. We're the ones who are witnessing to the Messiah, the one you murdered. Um, and of course, as we see in verse 33, they're a little mad. <laughs> who would like to read to the rest of this, the rest of this chapter? May I say one other thing? Yes, please. Uh, it strikes me this line about the God of our fathers raised up Jesus whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. And uh, I know Jeannie Constantino has talked about the crucifixion. The point was not to kill Christ, but to discredit him because you know, we, we see with uh, the stoning of Stephen, they have no trouble killing someone when they need to. <laughs> right. But the point was that to have him crucified was to discredit him um, because it was the most shameful death evidently that the Romans knew and they understood in the law that cursed was anyone who hung on a tree. Right. And already they're interpreting the cross as a tree and very, using that very phrase, hanging on a tree. And so it's as though Peter is emphasizing, God raised up the man whom you would consider cursed. The cursed man is the blessed man. Yeah. The one you rejected is the chosen one. <laughs> this is the stone the builders have rejected. Yep. Isn't that, uh, that's quoted in Acts 2, right? I know that that line, I think, is quoted here in Acts 2 or Acts 4. 
Yeah, it's already it's so it's fascinating when you when you when you delve into this at like academic biblical studies where uh, you don't it doesn't have to be academic per se, but just the folks who are paid to do this for a living. <laughs> uh, what has been in vogue for the past um, decade or so uh, and more is the intertextuality. Um, this is kind of uh, reverberating off of what Jim was saying earlier about the connection between the Old Testament and New Testament. Um, and how uh, there's one professor at Duke who is very famous for a, a book that he had the title of the echoes uh, of scripture. And that when you see something like hanging on a tree in this context, um, we were so programmed, at least I was in this kind of um, partly because of the way the footnotes that work in Bibles are uh, concordances and things, right? You look and you see, Oh, that must be a reference to Psalm two. What it really is, it's an echo of a theme that you, if you, if you really read scripture closely, you can see it. So what else? I mean, tree, this already has so many resonances throughout scripture. Uh, you go to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You go to blessed is the man. Um, you have um, uh, like a tree beside the water. Uh, you have all of these images and things that I think uh, if you are, in scripture you can see aspects yes i think it's um referencing the curses the man who hangs on a tree but it's fascinating how these images flow through all of scripture um and it's important to hear those resonances when you read it that it's not just um how shall i say this it's not just i'm going to make an argument so i'm going to choose a quote from psalm 2 or this that's there, but it's also, it's a broader use of scripture and the whole narrative of scripture and not just plucking random verses. Uh, seemingly sometimes it seems out of context, but you have to read it within a broader context of the whole covenant or the whole canon of the Old Testament for it to make sense. Well, and it seems as though we're starting to see a, a framework for interpreting scripture and calling the cross a tree. Yes. It's fascinating that you have it already this early too, right? That they, they didn't know what Jesus was doing, but once they get the Holy Spirit, it's, um, and I think this is probably, this is, all right, so this is Thelagumina. This is me with my opinion here. Uh, mm, but I, I, I think this is fair to say from what you see and like the end of Gospel of Luke with the, on the road to Emmaus, that uh, Jesus opens the eyes of the apostles and I, I don't think they had like a great old big Bible study <laughs> the way that we do it. But there is some element here of um, them being taught and the Holy Spirit infusing them and teaching them how to read scripture in a way that suddenly it's, um, this is how we learn things, right? Like this has to be for us to be it for something to click for us. Some of us, it requires like this needs to be bumped up up here, but then I need to like move it here and then it will like click into place and then I'll see it or I'll understand it. Um, the Holy Spirit was that for them. And I think the, the days that they're walking with our Lord and his appearances and explaining scripture to them, uh, that they were able to then as being devout Jews who knew scripture, Peter was unable to get up and preach a homily that was uh, basically exegesis of uh, Joel and Psalm um, 2. That 
you have these themes and those become the basic cornerstones for how we understand Christianity, Christology. Um, you see it in Paul. He has particular phrases that are places in scripture that he loves uh, to go to, to explicate the faith. I think that also gives us the framework when we also read the Old Testament to be able to read the Old Testament with apostolic faith and experience and to discern meaning there. Um, what I mean by that is we can so easily get caught up in studying scripture to say, oh, what did St. John Chrysostom say about verse 32? And then you go read the homily and you're like, he never said anything about verse 32. <laughs> I'm sure he did because he said a lot about a lot of things. Uh, but that's our relationship with scripture is not something bound to, I have to proof text something from the first, you know, millennia. What we do is we understand, we read scripture, we read it with the mind of the church and the mind of the fathers. Uh, and if it stays within the basic boundaries of interpretation, it bring, if it brings repentance, it brings <laughs> knowledge of God, and it's within the canonical and uh, doctrinal bases of the church. I don't see what the problem is. Um, so, they, of course, in opening that, then you can have all sorts of debates. But we're not, our faith is not something where we just say, well, Chrysostom has given us the interpretation of verse 32. Sorry, this is one of my hobby horses because I have encountered this too much. <laughs> so what you're saying, the correct answer is it's a mystery. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, I'm saying that within the church, if you are striving to get the mind of Christ through scripture, through liturgy, through following him, um, and and being open to being corrected, right, and with humility, you're probably going to be fine. I've just encountered too many people when they, they say, I don't know how to read scripture anymore because I'm afraid because I don't know what the fathers say. And I say, just read the scriptures. <laughs> Come to church, confess your sins. Like, you don't have to become a scholar of fourth century Nicene faith in order to, like, interpret, like, read the book of Acts. You can read the book of Acts. Uh and you might not be able to see all the symbols or all the like echoes of the Old Testament, but you can come away and say, I need to be uh, a witness to uh, my Lord in the same way that the apostles were. Sounds like a good, that's a good effect. <laughs> that's, that's what it's there for. And then the 15th time you come around and read it, you might see other things there too, because you've expanded your universe and read more of scripture and you swim in it so that when you see like how Reed saw hanging on a tree, um, your mind goes, Oh wait, what about that? Oh yeah. I remember there's a new Testament verse that talks about being cursed on tree. I wonder what that, what, what is that about? Oh, and then off you go. The important thing is to read it, get it inside. And it's almost in some ways like a kaleidoscope when you have more and more pieces, when they bump into each other and then you see patterns that you didn't see before. And it's, um, I was thinking of a story of a, um, I'd heard from a, a rabbi. Uh, I think she was conservative um, from the conservative school of Judaism, but she talked about wrestling with scripture and even the passages that um, 
on, on first or second or 20th reading that she still was disturbed by, uh, her approach was, the problem's not with the text, the problem is with me. I need to keep wrestling with the text though and live with it to find. And the example she gave was all the images from the Old Testament of God as a warrior. Yes. And she was very disturbed by that. Yes. Until um, she met a cancer patient who said, told her, this means so much to me because I want to know that God is fighting with me as I'm uh, fighting against cancer. And this text that she had wrestled with for years, or this image she had wrestled with for years, she could see, ah, now this put together with, and I can see this. Um, But scripture is not the kind of thing you can just read it and then you have it the moment you read it. it. It is something that it takes years and years of, of reading and in some cases wrestling with the text and some texts that you know backwards and forwards and think you know it. And then something happens that shakes it into a totally different position. Um, But it's dynamic. It's not about, I read it and then I get it. It's I read it and then it works through my life. Which is why there's a difference between, I would say reading this and this manner uh, pri- like there's all sorts of different levels, like reading it privately, uh, reading it in kind of a community where we're talking about it and wrestling with it. And then hearing it in the assembly is another way in which scripture, there are things that have jumped out at me that I never, but it's because it was in the, in the assembly or because of something that had happened on Friday <laughs> that I needed to hear it on Sunday. And there it was smacking me upside the face. Um, the fathers are adamant about, and then the wrestling of scripture, uh, that God made scripture to be kind of cryptic and puzzle-like for the sake of that, our effort to actually wrestle it with it so that we can actually extract the truth out of it and actually enjoy it, <laughs> that God made it this way for us. Um, well, because he made us to be intelligent and he br- brings these things. And does that mean that we um, need to become scholars? Not in the way that 21st century thinks scholarship is. Does that mean that we need to be literate of scripture? Absolutely. So I know some of you, I'm singing to the, the, the choir, but this is, I think this is helpful in recording these things and be, just being able to help encourage folks to be enticed to read scripture and wrestle with scripture, uh, that it does offer many fruit uh, worth the effort. Um, I think I was, was this past Sunday? I just remember talking about in a sermon, my own relationship. No, I think it was two Sundays ago, my own relationship with the scripture where I'd sit and read Romans and then read it again, and then just like read Romans 5 and 6 over and over again. I'm just like, I have no idea what it's saying. <laughs> I'm just like, what is this faith thing? <laughs> like, I, I get it, but then like I read it in the text, I'm like, I don't understand this. Uh, it just took time and experience uh, and going over those texts, as Jim said, for it to finally come to a place where it actually made sense to me. And I'm still trying to do that. So let's hear about uh, Gamaliel. I'll go ahead and read it uh, just so we can get going, get going to the next chapter too. 
When they heard this, that is uh, the council, they were furious and plotted to kill them. Then one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in respect by all the people and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. And then he said to the men of Israel, take heed to yourselves that, you, that what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Thudius, we'll go with Thudius, rose up claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan for this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. And they agreed with him. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Gamaliel underlines something of Peter's teaching in a kind of ironic way. Peter has been saying uh, in his sermons that he's been giving that this is the plan of God and that this has come about because God planned it this way and this is the time and this is how he's done it. And you have Gamaliel saying, you know, it'd be wise for us. You heard about all these other messiahs. They died, things, you know, nothing came of it. So uh, basically if we just lay it alone, it'll either take care of itself or if it's God, God will, you know, do what God's going to do. So there's a kind of irony here that Gamaliel is basically giving the advice of um, falling into a, in a certain way how Peter has been talking about this, that uh, if it's of God, it's going, then we're going to fight against God. So let's just let it be. Uh, of course, they agreed with him, but they needed to get a little beating in first, apparently. So they beat them <laughs> uh, and told them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And we have, again, this reiteration, uh, again, for whatever reason, this, this time around reading the book of Acts, this emphasis repeated uh, in almost every other chapter in Acts, that daily in the temple, in every house, <clears throat> they taught, preached Jesus, or there was miracles going on, or um, they were in wonder and awe. And we have here again the emphasis on uh, their continued um, teaching and preaching in the name of Jesus, even after they'd been beat. <coughs> Sorry, I, I went too fast there uh, out of Acts 5. Any comments or questions or about that last bit? <coughs> so... It is 8.30. Should we fly through Acts 6 or just say we did Acts 5 and that was that? Oh, man. Acts 6. Oh, we can get through Acts 6. You know what? No, we're not. <laughs> what do you all say? There's a lot of meat on those bones. Oh, as soon as I, like, I was just like, you know what? I want to, I might spend <laughs> one, one session just on Acts 6. Mm -hmm. 
because there's a lot going on. <clears throat> More so than you might realize. Stephen is fascinating. The whole account with Stephen and this the theophany of seeing God and all that, it's, it's fascinating. So I think we should probably stop there for right now. And then we can talk about the Hebrews versus the Hellenists and Stephen. And then the sermon that he's going to give in Acts 7. <coughs> this is, Acts 7 is, that's a real sermon. That's a long sermon. Are there any uh, questions, observations, uh, or anything about Acts 5 or anything that we've read so far in Acts? <coughs> It's all gravy. <laughs> Brent is worried about your cough. Uh-oh. Uh, I haven't really been coughing until right now. Probably because it's 69 degrees in this room, and I've been used to about 73 now in the house. Because it's summer. I can hear her laughing. <laughs> Maybe really it's laugh. allergies. Maybe it's COVID-19. <laughs> I just say I got the vid. It's, it's allergy time in Tennessee. Uh, boy, it's howdy. Time. <laughs> That's true. Well, there's there's maybe about three hours in December. That's not. I so forgot. Much. I yeah. forgot. Forgive me. You're right. So well, um, let's uh, next week we'll continue uh, with Act Six. And right now I'm going to go ahead and stop the recording. And then if anyone wants to say anything off the record <laughs> do you want to stop cloud recording <laughs>